I'm Steve Denise and welcome to The Bookstash, a podcast where I chat with fantasy author Ash Oldfield about reading, writing and everything in between. So Ash, what book have you been reading this <laughs> time around? I get um, so bored saying that. It's always the same thing I say every I know, episode. You never ask me how I am, I notice. You yeah. just go straight into the book. That's, what book? that's the that's the format. Yeah, How you are can, you, Ash? I'm all right, thank you. That's thank good. you for asking. It's really yeah. nice to be asked that every now yeah, and then. I'm going important. all right. Yeah. How are you? I'm excellent. Excellent. Good. Good okay. to hear. So, <laughs> so, what book have you been reading? What have you been reading, Ash? Uh, I wanted to talk today about The Little Prince by Antoine Dusan Exupere. I hope you said that right. We practiced so many times. <laughs> uh, so The Little Prince is a book that is really famous. Um, I think there's even a shop called The Little Prince. Uh, I think there was an animation made of it. I, I could be wrong with yeah, that. That's correct. Uh, but I don't think many people have actually read it. Um, this was on my list of books. I shared a little while ago. Do people read? Um, say they've read, essential, read? No, no, yeah, no, no. The essential books you must read before ah, you die list yes. that I've been going through. And this was one of the first ones that I picked up purely because it's so little. And I thought, yeah, I can handle that. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about this because it is a list I talked about. Um, and it was such a fantastic little book. I'm really glad that I did read it. Yeah. So The Little Prince, uh, it's written in the style like it's a children's book, <laughs> but it's um, got lessons that are really important for adulthood and it's a really heavily quoted book. So people have probably heard quotes from this book without realising that that's where it's from. Um, so it's a tale right from the Wikipedia page. It's <laughs> a tale of loneliness, friendship, love and loss. Um, so it was based on, they think it was based on the author's experience as an aviator after World War II. So, uh, Antoine Dussan Exupéry was a member of the French aristocracy who fled, um, fled France because of the war and all the horrible things that were done there. So he wrote this book. It's actually one of the most translated books in the world. So that's during the Nazi occupation of post, uh, post, just after that. Yeah, I think okay. so. Yeah, I don't know. I've got my. T- I'm terrible with timelines. It was either <laughs> it was either after World War One or after World War Two. It was after right, one of the okay. World Wars that yeah. he he went and he was um, visiting the Sahara as an aviator. So the basic premise of the book, which is why they think it was almost semi-autobiographical is because it was about an aviator being stranded in the Sahara Desert and he has only eight days of food and water as supplies. So whilst he's trying to fix his plane, he encounters a golden-haired boy from another planet. This planet is called B612. And he, uh, this little boy, this little prince, recounts his life story and all the planets he has visited. So the planet he comes from, it's really tiny, so you could walk it. Like he's like a giant in comparison to it. Yeah. You kind of need to see the pictures to see what I'm talking about. I think about. I've seen this visual before. Yes. Yeah. So uh, he, this little boy recounts all the planets that he has visited. Very, very fanciful, but the tone itself is very somber. And um, this story is written as a memorial to the prince. So the story is very fantastical because it's written from the logic of a child rather than an adult. So, for example, the prince flies from planet to flat planet on a flight flock of birds and there is a vain talking rose on his planet who claims to be unique. So when the prince comes to earth and sees all these roses, he's like, hang on, my rose lied to me. She told me she was unique and she made me like protect her and I made her this glass dome and everything and now there's hundreds of them. Uh, yes. Um, yes. So Something that's a nod to in um, or nodded to in uh, Beauty and the Beast. 
Is it? Is that where they get that from? I would assume so. Uh, um, so I think that... <laughs> Maybe the, not. That's not a fact. I wouldn't quote me on that. Uh, I think that the dedication kind of says it also. Uh, I would just want to read it. It says, I ask children who may read this book to forgive me for dedicating it to a grown-up. I have a genuine excuse. This grown-up is the best friend I have in the world. I have another excuse. This grown-up understands everything, even books for children. I have a third excuse. This grown-up lives in France where he's cold and hungry. He needs a lot of consoling. If all these excuses are not enough, I will dedicate the book to the child whom this grown-up used to be once upon a time. All grown-ups started off as children, though few of them remember. So I hereby correct my dedication to Leon Worth when he was a little boy. So that kind of sets up what this whole book is about, yeah. which is basically almost a love letter to childhood, yeah, that sort right. of um, nostalgia. So I wanted to read the opening paragraph. I don't normally read from books at all, but I think I, I just really wanted to because it's really <laughs> beautiful. So it starts off with, once when I was six years old, I saw a magnificent picture in a book called True Stories of the Virgin Forest. It showed a boa constrictor swallowing a wild beast. Here is a copy of the drawing. So if you see here, there's a picture of a snake wrapped around like a bear or something. I don't know. In the book, it said, boa constrictor swallows their prey whole without chewing. Afterwards, they are unable to move and they digest it going to sleep for six months. This made me think a lot about the adventures of the jungle and eventually I succeeded with a coloured pencil in making my first drawing. My drawing number one, it looks like this. So if you look at the top picture, I showed my masterpiece to the grown-ups and asked my if my drawing frightened them. Why would a hat frighten anyone, they answered. My drawing was not of a hat. It was of a boa constrictor digesting an elephant. So then I threw the inside, then I drew the inside of the boa constrictor for the benefit of the grown-ups. Grown-ups always need explanations. My drawing number two looked like this. The grown-ups now advise me to give up drawing boa constrictors altogether from the inside or the outside and devote myself instead to geography, history, arithmetic and grammar. So it was that at the age of six, I gave up a wonderful career as a painter. I have been discouraged by the failure of my drawing number one and my drawing number two. Grown-ups never understand anything by themselves, and it is exhausting for children always and forever to be giving explanations. I had to choose a different career then, so I learned how to fly aeroplanes. I have flown all over the world, and geography, I will admit, has served me very well. At a glance, I can distinguish China from Arizona, which is very useful if you get lost in the night. In the course of my life, I have therefore had many dealings with many important people. I have lived a great deal among grown-ups. I have observed them from close up. This has not greatly improved my opinion of them. Whenever I come across one who seemed to me at all clear-headed, I would try showing my drawing number one, which I always kept by me. I wanted to find out if this would, was somebody with real understanding. But the answer would always be, that is a hat. In which case, I would not talk to that person about boa constrictors or virgin forests or stars. I would place myself on their level. I would talk about bridge and golf, about politics and neckties. And the grown-up would be very pleased to have made the acquaintance of such a sensible fellow. So I kept my own company without anyone whom I could talk to. So that's sort of the opening. So that kind of gives you an idea of how fanciful this writer is yeah. um, and how he's retained that childhood uh, spirit. 
which I would argue most writers have a huge sense of child within them. I think that's how yeah, you retain absolutely. that imagination. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it comes across as being quite easy, an easy read. and It's really easy read. I actually yeah. feel like I could just do this whole podcast of just reading this book. It's so easy to read. Um, it's very short. It's very um, – there's not a sentence wasted. Yeah. Everything has a meaning. Everything is beautiful. Um so this there's oh, is it the so as i mentioned before this was a high, heavily quoted book um uh, there's especially a scene where the little prince is recounting his adventures and he comes in contact with a fox and the things the fox says are very often quoted so he says things like you be- re- you become responsible forever for what you have tamed and important things can only be seen with the heart, not the eyes. So very poignant sayings that um, take a lot of time to think about. Yeah. So, yeah, The the Little Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry well is uh, very fanciful, very beautiful, um, twisty, turny tale uh, through this little prince's eyes as he's observed Earth. Yeah. Very sad ending as well. Oh. Spoiler alert. Um, but it's it's nice. It's a beautiful story and great illustrations. I only got the Penguins Classics version, so I didn't think it would have the pictures inside. Yeah, uh, and it does. So I definitely guess they're, they're pivotal to the narrative. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think this is not and this is not an audiobook. This definitely you need the yes. pictures. Um, Hence, you can't read all the chapters on the podcast. Yeah. Oh, that's the picture <laughs> of the prince on there. Yeah, I saw that when I was looking through before. Um, yeah, that's very cool. So it's an absolutely beautiful book. Oh, it was published in 1943. So it's in between. World War One and World War Two. I know enough to know. Wait, no, that's during World War Two. But he wrote it before that, right? Yeah, yeah, presumably. Yeah, no, he must have written it after World. War. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> I did. I did actually research this heavily, so I should have known. We'll cut this bit out. I'm gonna leave it in. <laughs> All right. So, what takeaways could you give our uh, listeners about that book, Ash? What did you learn? I actually didn't want to talk about so much about this book as the writer himself. Yeah. So this writer had some really interesting writing habits. So he would often start writing at 11 p.m. He'd fuel himself up with coffee. So he'd have a tray of coffee and just keep drinking and drinking. And he would write for hours, like kind of hyped up on coffee, write and write and write until he'd pass out of sleep. Oh, wow. And then um, he stated that he was absolutely obsessed with his work. So while he was working on it, he couldn't do anything else. He was a huge perfectionist. So he used to write page upon page by hand, then cross out most of it, and then substitute like 100 words for one word. So a sentence would be replaced uh, in place of a page. So he had this intense concentration. Yeah. So original drafts would be reduced by as much as two-thirds. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. So um, and actually I have to say other than writing throughout the night, doped up on coffee because I can't do that because I have another I have a day job. Yeah. Uh, this is actually really similar to my own writing process. So I tend to I write my first drafts. And then I do tend to cross out about two thirds of it and write everything from scratch. But I don't labor over every sentence like he seemed to. So yeah. every word was hugely important to him. Um, so 
The lesson um, that I wanted to talk about today is that a common question beginning writers ask me a lot is how long should a book be? How long should my story be? And I often respond as long as it needs to be and no more, which is kind of quite a vague response. And I think you need to let instinct guide you. But Mm. I think this book, The Little Prince, is a really good example of how valuable a shorter book can be. More does not necessarily mean better. Yeah, absolutely. And the discipline this author has, I think, can teach you a lot about uh, getting rid of extraneous language, purple prose. There's no need for it. Um, Not a single sentence in this book is wasted. There's no cheap throwaway lines. Um, There's also uh, not having too much pride to replace your work. You know, uh, yeah. there's that pride it's can really get thing. in the way of progress. Yeah, yeah. So this author obviously wasn't too prideful that he would go, oh, this is perfect. It doesn't need to be changed. He kept changing it until it was genuinely perfect. So, I, th- yeah, I think that's very valuable. That's a good lesson for any creative endeavour. Definitely. Like, just because you spend a lot of time on something doesn't mean you shouldn't replace it with something mm, else. Yes. I and find that challenging in music. Sometimes throwing everything away is the best thing that you can do. Yeah. And just using the essence of it to create something else. Yeah, because the output of what you created, the value in that might not be the output. It might be the lesson you learned mm. in creating it to yep. create something better. Definitely, yeah. definitely. No, that's a good that's a good point. Um, okay, Ash, uh, writing tip for this episode. What have you got? I wanted to talk about lessons you can take away from Shakespeare ah. uh, because I, I am a teacher and some of my students the other day were complaining They've chosen Shakespearean English as a VCE subject and are worried that there's no value in that. And they're like, oh my gosh, I screwed everything up. I didn't up. even and know that was a subject. I didn't know that was a subject. Maybe it's not VCE. It might be year 10. Right, I don't okay. know. My, my year levels are kind of all over yeah, the place. Yeah, yeah. Um, so maybe it's a kid who skipped a year level at my school. So um, it sounded like a really cool subject to me. And I was really jealous that they could study that. Yeah. And But they were mad of like, oh, I can't <laughs> believe that was the that was the English I had to choose because it fit in with my timetable. Uh, and I was like, no. <laughs> So I wanted to talk about Shakespeare of the value he has uh, or he had for us writers because I use Shakespeare all the time as a way of getting the flow in my dialogue right. And I think I've talked about this in prior podcasts. I believe episode three maybe, the one where we actually reviewed, we cheated. We did, the hollow crown, yes. (laughs) Um, It doesn't matter. But there are other plot devices other than just the flow of the dialogue that um, plot devices and themes that we can take from the bard. So he himself borrowed so heavily from history and he actually had this historian called um, uh, Holland, Hollandstead. Hollandstead, I'm going to say it's Hollandstead, that he borrowed heavily from. So if it was Hollandstead's history, it was in Shakespeare's plays. So he stole... He also stole from the Greek historian Plutarch. Not stole, but, you know, like use creative license. So if Shakespeare could do it, we can then do that from him. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to talk about some themes from specific plays. Um, Actually, no, I haven't done from specific plays. I've mentioned specific plays as I've done it. So the first one that I wanted to talk about is the use of role reversal to upset the status quo. So... I didn't write down what play that was from. <laughs> Great. All right, read the scene and we'll see if we can work so, it out. So, oh, no, I did. In the play As You Like It. 
There you go. I was just like, oh, as you like it. As you like what? Yeah. In the play, as you like it, um, Rosalind dresses up as a man Orlando or to impress Orlando, sorry. So she dresses up as a man to impress the man that she likes. Yep. And um, the man then sees her as an equal, which he wouldn't have done prior. And Black Adder uses this so fantastically. I don't know if you remember the character Kate who dresses up as Bob. And yes, becomes yes. Edmund's like um, manservant person, yeah. and he falls in love with. I love you, Bob. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and they use that line, "Kiss me, Kate," and switch it to "Kiss." Yeah, me. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, it was great. So yeah, so they use this Rosalind dressing as a man to be seen as an equal, which would never have been done in Shakespearean times. Um, but the thing is, so he gets to know her on her own merit, but then you have all this other stuff at stake because she's done this and she's done this deception. So using this role reversal, not only does it upset the status quo, but so you can play around with that a little bit, but also there's this sense of urgency that you need to resolve this because you know things can't keep going as they're going because it's a lie. Yeah. So it actually works really well. Upsetting the status quo works, uh, that role reversal, to make sure that there's a lot at stake and that it needs to be resolved really quickly. I think she had another character fell in love with her main, her, she dressed as a man and then someone else fell in love with that man. I think that's what happened. Yeah. So it was, yeah. And I guess that's a good way to play with lots of dichotomies because you can do it with not just gender, but with no, yeah. race or, or sex, sexuality or, mm. I don't know, lots of different options. You could do it with catfishing on the internet. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> if you wanted to do a modern day twist on that. It was just a thing I was listening to on a podcast recently. Uh, yeah, nice. yeah. Um So that was the first one. So that was from As You Like It. Then you've got The Tempest. Have you have you seen The Tempest? Yeah, yeah. I watched it on a documentary. I haven't actually seen it myself, just the bit I've, on the I documentary. I think I've read it, not watched um, it. Yeah. So the character in that, uh, Caliban, is, he's seen as a half-human because he comes from an unknown land and has strange Customs. Just let that sink in. Mm. They only consider him half human because he comes from somewhere else and his traditions are different. So this can be used to highlight assumptions we make about people that are different to us due to their race, their religion, their disability, their socioeconomic status, etc. So you can use that of um, what are your preconceptions about this person and then seeing the humanity in them and how we're all, is it called we're all Pangeans? At the end yeah. of the day, um, yeah. So that's so that's the Tempest, and I that was played by Ben Weishaw in. I saw a thing on it, and Ben Weishaw is just perfect for playing Caliban. So it was great. The other one, Macbeth, is yep. a great little thing to um, steal some themes from, which is a serial killer um, with a conscience. Yeah. So it's a really great way of providing a three dimensional character, and Macbeth himself. It wasn't his idea to murder. He had this stronger force of his wife, but he still did it. He still had it within him. He could have said no. He didn't have to do it. And so, you know, seeing him tearing himself up, because it wasn't just that Macbeth was a murderer. It was that he murdered someone he really cared about. He's someone he really respected. So that's something that you can play around with. Of yeah, absolutely. Seeing all sides to a story. So did I have any more? No. Yeah, nice. That's plenty. I just wanted to pick some of the different Shakespearean stories that you don't tend to cover. I know Macbeth is a more popular one, but, yeah, I just wanted to talk about some of the other ones and some of the themes from them that we can use. Good good lessons Um, It's amazing how they're still relevant today after hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm. Humans have not changed one bit. (laughs) So, yeah. Excellent. Um, Okay, so... 
enough about other writers. Mm-hmm. Ash, let's talk about you. Yes. What have you been up to? Um, I have started writing chapter three. Yep. I've written the first paragraph. Not the first paragraph. The first scene. Right. Um, which is probably it's only about eight hundred words. But I got to a bit where I need to describe a new character and I was in the car before I, I got to somewhere like an hour early. Like, you know, like I do that. I get to places really early. So I was in the car an hour early and I realized I didn't have my notes on this new character. So this new character, I've got all these like facts about him and I didn't have my notes. So I had to stop where I was, but oh. I've, I've handwritten, <laughs> it's only handwritten about 800 words in yeah, okay. chapter three. Cool. I can't so, wait to read it eventually. But we'll see how we go with accountability because I'm going to be getting more busy lately. Later. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see. But so far, so good. So that just leaves our writing prompt, Ash. What have you got for us? I wanted to pull it back to Shakespeare. I'm not done with him yet. So I wanted to take probably the most famous, the most well-known of Shakespeare's plays, Romeo and Juliet. So I want uh, you to think about if we were to have a modern day Romeo and Juliet, who would each be and where would they come from? And why would their love be so unlikely? Yeah, right. So this doesn't just have to be like... Um, the Baz Luhrmann. Yeah, Leonardo DiCaprio yep. one. Uh, this can be from maybe they're from another planet. It's from an alien planet. Uh, maybe different race. Uh, they could even be from, you know, LGBTIQ community. Mm. Uh, something like that. Something totally, totally um, modern day issues that we sort of... Um, trying to tackle at the moment. Yeah. Um, yeah, some really great places you can go with this. So you don't have to rewrite it. Just come up with the actual characters themselves. So where would they uh, – so who would they each be, where would they come from, and why would their love be so unlikely? Uh, that's everything, I think, for this I think episode. so. I think we've covered everything today. Okay, so – as always, you can find us on our website, which is bookstashpodcast.com. We're also on social media. So on Instagram and Twitter, we're just bookstashcast, or one word. And on Facebook, you can do a search for The Bookstash and you'll find us that way. Uh, until next time, keep reading, keep writing, and we'll see you soon. We'll see you soon.